think it'll be a more solitary experience than it was before. And I think it'll be something people do because they really feel the need to engage with what artists have to say. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, an emergency meeting convened by the World Health Organization devolved into a furious contest between the governments of China and the United States over who is to blame for the coronavirus pandemic and who should be able to lead humanity out of it. It represented a boiling over of the long-standing competition between the two countries and was a sad occasion for anyone in the business world, in technology, in science, or in the arts who has spent their lives trying to build stronger bonds of collaboration between these two great world powers. In the field of contemporary art, that group prominently includes Phil Tenari, a 40-year-old Philadelphia-born art specialist with a renowned fluency in Mandarin, who spent years editing China's foremost art publication before taking over Beijing's most adventurous art museum, the UCCA Contemporary Art Center, in 2011. Lately, however, geopolitics have been the least of Tenari's concerns as he has been leading his institution through the COVID-19 crisis. Now, having closed the museum in late January under government orders, he is about to reopen the UCCA to its devoted audience this week with Meditations in an Emergency, a new art exhibition inspired by the pandemic. Today, to talk about his experience of the crisis, what it means for museums going forward, and how it may have changed the world of art forever, I'm very pleased to have Phil on the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. I especially appreciate you calling uh, so early in the day all the way from Beijing. What time is it there now? It is now 5.07 on Friday morning. You are, as ever, the the consummate professional. (laughs) (laughs) Well... What have these past four months been like for you? How did it progress from then to now? So, I mean, for me, one funny element was that I was actually a reporting intern at the New York Times in 2003 in Beijing during the SARS outbreak. So I had a kind of frame of reference for what an epidemic, and that that never turned into a pandemic, looks like under this Chinese system. And I think a lot of people in China actually of a certain age. Uh, Most of my staff were in elementary school in 2003, but they they still remember being stuck at home, having to wear a mask, those kinds of things. So it it was a little while before we realized this was actually even worse than that. When it became clear that this virus was going to be a global catastrophe, what were the first measures that you took when it comes to the museum? It's next week that we'll welcome visitors again. So the first measures had to do with trying to make it safe enough for some staff to come back into the building, uh, into the office building, not necessarily into the galleries. So in the beginning, it was just a lot of temperature taking and very detailed registration of any time anyone entered. We closed all the entrances except for one, and then just constant disinfection and mandatory mask wearing. And then, you know, as time's gone on, the sort of biosurveillance stuff has has gone up. There's just a little kind of mini app inside your WeChat account called HealthKit, which looks at your data records and looks at recorded temperatures and tracks to facial recognition. And basically, whenever you enter a, a building, you, you sort of 
open that up. And if, if you're fine, it displays a big green kind of check mark and, and you go on. And you need to show that actually to get into 798, the area where we're located. And then to say nothing of, you know, the, the mandatory distancing and, and mask wearing in public in Beijing is still absolutely de facto. So if you're not wearing one, you won't be allowed into uh, a store or a restaurant or something. How does the app know that you're okay? I mean, it's, uh, it, it knows that you haven't been in a high-risk area because of geolocation. So when the museum closed down, how did you manage to keep programming going and adapt to the situation and maintain an engagement with your audience? I think it was a process that's in a way very similar to what institutions all over the world would go through a few weeks later. Once we got over the initial shock of not being able to move on as normal and and the significant logistical complications of having to indefinitely postpone and reschedule, you know, everything in the immediate future, we pretty quickly moved to thinking about how we could still try and do something. Hmm. And part of that is just because you have a whole team that's used to producing content. I mean, we work on a much quicker turnaround than major American institutions say. But nonetheless, pretty quickly you have to start thinking about, you know, what do you do with all that energy of people who want to produce? (laughs) For us, it also coincided with a thing we've been thinking about over the last couple of years, which is just how to be more present and more engaged online. But um, the Chinese internet is, people tend to Think of it more in terms of censorship and in terms of restriction, but actually there's so much innovation just in terms of the kinds of platforms. I mean, TikTok is is Chinese originally, so Douyin as it's called in Chinese, we'd never been present enough there. Its main competitor here is called Kuaishou. Uh, so just to give one example, we ended up collaborating with them to, to do this online concert that was tied to actually the show we had up when we closed we had nine musicians brought together on one Saturday evening, you know, all performing from where they were. I don't know, it was particularly cathartic because it happened on February 29th, which was kind of just as we were getting to the end of that, the really intense phase of daily bodily paranoia and of absolute quarantine. And people hadn't really even witnessed live music of any sort in a few weeks. We had something like over 100,000 viewers for that. And it was just this incredible moment of everyone being at home together, you know, all the messages flying back and forth and the kinds of reactions we were getting from people online. The highlight of that one was um, Ryuichi Sakamoto, the composer dialed in from from New York, actually. And he had this symbol uh, as part of his performance that said Made in Wuhan on it and... He kind of ended his appearance by telling everyone that to stick with it and stay strong. So that kind of became this significant moment, and more broadly than just in the art world, too. It was kind of a, a small cultural moment. Hmm. The Chinese government was even really supporting this kind of innovation, asking museums shortly after mandating that they all shut down to start creating quote unquote cloud exhibitions to enrich people's spiritual and cultural life during the epidemic. Did your museum take part in that? We, we didn't. We're a Kunsthalle model, right? We don't have a permanent collection. So it's we don't have that tragic situation of great art sitting there with no one to look at it. 
um, <laughs> and just logistically was kind of miraculous that we were between major exhibitions. Hmm. So yeah, we saw some of our peers here doing online exhibitions that that didn't quite feel like the right model for us just because we didn't have one in the pipeline. And by early to mid-March, we kind of got wind of the fact that we would probably be able to reopen in late May, pegged to, you know, the gallery weekend, which normally happens right before our Basel Hong Kong. But when we heard that that was rescheduled for late May, I pretty quickly realized we were going to need to have something or else the whole year might just go by without anything happening. And I also realized that all the things we've been working on weren't going to take place as scheduled. You know, pretty quickly the border was sealed and flights had been drastically reduced. So it was pretty clear that those weren't going to happen. Hmm. And so it occurred to us to try and do something that might react to it in a way. We, we operate this other space by the sea in a town called Beidaiho, which is the seaside town that goes with Beijing. It's where the, the leadership have gone for their summer holidays since the founding of the People's Republic. But it's also where Beijingers go for a beach weekend. So we have this beautiful place called UCCA Dune, which is this museum buried under a sand dune that lets out onto the beach. And we, we, we actually reopened there on April 21st. But we actually installed a show and then did a, an opening with no people because it's inside this sort of planned vacation community called Aranya. And they weren't quite open yet, but we just knew we, we wanted to get a show up. We knew things were going to be going back to normal shortly thereafter. So we did a Zoom opening with all you know, like 100 media uh, dialed in and we had a curatorial walkthrough video that we played. And then we had a bunch of the artists on it's a 10 artist group show. So I think six or seven of them were online and could mm. answer questions and give comment. And then very quickly thereafter, the show opened in real life. Now you are reopening with a new exhibition titled Meditations in an Emergency, which you organized over the past month in quickfire time as a direct response to the pandemic's impact on our lives. Can you talk a little bit about this show and how you went about putting it together? Sure. We realized that we were sort of faced with this incredible situation of the whole world encountering something so monumental at the same time, <laughs> living on the other side of the world. I often think about, you know, the kinds of things that establish temporality, whether that's the push alerts you receive on your phone every day, regardless of where you are, or even like when new updates to operating systems get pushed and suddenly, you know, there you are in Stockholm and the cab drivers just downloaded the latest version of iOS, right? So we're on this kind of major level, here we are all dealing with this systemic shock. Um, but I mean, we realized, we, first of all, the conditions for exhibition making had changed drastically, including something as basic and as important as the budget available, right? So instead of some major big budget summer show, the question was, how can we just get something together. We, we'd sort of been in a similar situation once before because 2016, 2017, we underwent this transition where the Olin's family who had founded the place pulled out essentially. And so we, we had this period of uncertainty before a new group of owners came about during which I did a show called The New Normal, which was 
was also right after the 2016 election, which sort of reflected what we thought of as the state of the world. In contrast, you know, here we are facing this situation that raises a set of questions that I think a lot of us in the massive amounts of media we consume every day have probably been through a number of times already. So essentially, when I realized we could reopen in this way, took our whole exhibitions team, sat everyone down in a room and said, let's just start thinking, you know, how might we approach this? What kinds of themes are there? What kinds of artists do we want to engage with to present works that reflect on them in some way? So it's not as if all this work has been created in the last month, but the framework, of course, is is very deeply informed by what's going on. So, you know, we just sort of took this situation and broke it down into different themes. Hmm. So, you know, the, the first one, I think we're calling it the fragile everyday, you know, this idea that routines stop and that social realities are constructed and that what we think of as, as quotidian is actually quite exceptional. And then there's a section about kind of mortality and biopolitics and having your vital signs taken again and again and the kinds of modes of thinking that come out of that constant attention to one's own uh, wellness and that of the people around them. There's a section about animality and the, the sort of false binary between humanity and other species. Uh, we have a section about movement and anti-globalization and xenophobia, you know, those sorts of upheavals to the global order that we're seeing growing out of this. And then we have a final section that's about information and misinformation and how perceptions are shaped and manipulated. Since this whole pandemic broke out, the Chinese artist who has gotten the most attention, had the greatest visibility, has been the dissident artist Ai Weiwei, who has been doing many appearances in the press. He's written op-eds for a couple of publications. He appeared on this podcast just a few episodes ago, and he's been vocal in criticizing China's response to the crisis. Are there any artists in China who are taking a critical stance to the government's response? I think this has revealed some very interesting and difficult fault lines, mostly generationally among people uh, here. So I was, I was talking with some of our patrons yesterday and people born like me in the 70s, and they were sort of reflecting on how that generation, our generation, if you will, is this kind of funny middle ground between people born in the 50s and 60s like Iowa who have a direct lived experience of what I often call high socialism, you know, the Mao era and the political campaigns, the first 30 years of the People's Republic and, and, and of 1989. A lot of them have a very idealistic view of democratic countries, the U.S. and, and Europe, to places hmm. outside of China. There are a few others of that generation who have similar responses and whose focus has mainly been on I mean, the, the initial cover-up and then the sort of orchestration of social control that's allowed the flare-up to, um, hmm. to subside a bit. Interestingly, the younger generation, people born in the late 80s, 90s, and even after 2000, tend to be 
quite nationalistic in, deep down in their thinking and, you know, sort of not of the mindset that the West is inherently better. Um, and I think a lot of their views have in many ways been borne out when you look at how these responses have played out. I mean, it's, I think there's, there are very troubling things in every country's response. And I think particularly in those of the world's two great powers right now on, on different axes. But hmm. then this middle generation, you see, you know, some people who studied abroad may skew one way, others who didn't may skew another. You hear stories of WeChat groups where all kinds of friendships have been fractured based on people's views on the Chinese government's culpability for various elements of this. So it's been kind of a divisive moment. I mean, it seems that every time we speak, U.S.-Chinese relations are at a new low point. (laughs) Last time it was the trade war. Now it's this war over who's to blame for the coronavirus. So as an American running a museum in China, you have long worked to bridge this divide between the two countries' art communities. And it's been incredible in its impact in raising the visibility both of Chinese art abroad and of Western art inside of China. Do you think that's going to be more challenging to do now? Absolutely. And terrifyingly and depressingly, yes. Like, you do see people, you know, people who are completely part of this global art world, you know, people based here. On the sort of American side, you see people's inner racist come out, right? Or inner anti-China streak come out after decades mm-hmm. of this kind of engaged relationship between these two places. Uh, and that's, a, that's understandable in some ways. On the Chinese side, you see people's closet nationalism resurfacing in this really almost Trumpian way. And that's, that's quite disturbing too, because you're talking about people who on the surface are the, the types that you see at the Art Basel Hong Kong preview. And, and I mean, the lesson is that you, you can't really assume that Globalization has taken us in a single direction. Hmm. Um, the question becomes, how irreversible is this trajectory? And then a question for us is, is there anything we can do about it? I mean, the, the great gamble of UCCA, which was established at probably the rosiest moment of China's global emergence just a few months before the Beijing Olympics, you know, back in 2007, hmm has been that there is the possibility of of bridging some kind of gap through an artistic dialogue and collaboration. And that's been our guiding principle. I mean, it's not um, a natural thing to be an internationally oriented institution on Chinese soil. And so on the one hand, it does get harder, especially vis-a-vis the US as as things tighten. And then on the other, it, it just means we have to work even harder to do them. So to have a show like we did last year of Matthew Barney, which is talking about all these kind of deeply American themes of the Western landscape and gun politics and the frontier was this almost surreal moment. I hope, I hope to be able to keep doing this as, as long as possible. I, I'm an American, but UCCA has somehow become quite a locally grounded, although internationally oriented institution. And this trend of... Well, as we talked about around the Picasso show last summer of just a much larger public of people who are willing to engage with art, that certainly shows no signs of reversing, even if the broader geopolitical questions get thornier. 
each week. So now that you are reopening the museum, you're reopening in a vastly changed world, a whole different paradigm in terms of what's possible for people to do, you know, what is socially acceptable behavior. How is going to the museum now going to be different from going to the UCCA before the lockdown? And I think it'll be a more solitary experience than it was before. Hmm. I think, and I think it'll be something people do because they really feel the need to engage with what artists have to say. It's almost like needing to go to the grocery store at, uh, at a certain level. I think, especially after months of of not having this available, uh, I really wanted to put together a show that would provide a lot to think about and a lot of kind of spiritual and aesthetic sustenance. And, and then I think we're going you know, to operate it, to open it in such a way that, that people have, have a chance to, to get that. So in a practical matter, imagine that I am about to walk through the doors of the museum. What is my visit going to be like? What do I have to do to, to do the safety precautions that are necessary? So... You'll be wearing a mask because you'll be wearing a mask. Um, you'll get your temperature taken. Uh, and then you will scan a QR code and you'll open your health kit and show us your green code. And th- those, those things are all mandated. We, we have to do those. And, and there are spot checks to make sure we are doing those. Uh, and if we're not, then our ability to open is in question. You'll also scan another QR code where you will just enter your name and that's in place of having to fill in a, a physical form um, so that we have a log of, of all the people who've, who've been through. And then once you're, th- then there are those one meter lines separating people uh, at the entrance. We will only be admitting, you know, half of our normal capacity. We're fortunate in that our space is, is large enough. And I, for a show like this, I mean, it's, Shy of a, a major blockbuster, we're often at less than half of physical capacities, certainly on a weekday. And then, you know, when you get into the exhibition, there won't be headphones that are used by multiple people. We've done everything we can to reduce the number of surfaces to, you know, create flows that are conducive to maintaining appropriate distance. This show has a lower security budget than normal, but a higher uh, cleaning budget than normal. So we'll be in there with disinfectant very frequently, a couple times a day. And then our security staff will also be making sure that people are observing uh, all of the above-mentioned guidelines. So last year, before this all broke out, obviously, uh, you staged China's largest ever Picasso exhibition and was a blockbuster drawing nearly 9,000 people per day. It seemed like this was going to be the beginning of a whole new era of these blockbuster shows. Do you think blockbuster shows like that are ever going to be viable again? I do. Maybe after there's a vaccine. I think it's going to be a few, at least next year, maybe later. But I absolutely do think that 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 will happen again. I think what this will mean is that it's not that we're going to have to completely stop traveling or completely stop bringing major international projects here. It's more that we're just going to have to be a lot more considered about which ones we take on and hmm. what we want to get out of them. That's very, uh, <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. 
because because it's really so much fun to be in a full museum and to be seeing art with tons of people and really be caught up in this kind of slipstream of culture. So in that spirit, you're reopening the museum in tandem with Beijing Gallery Weekend, which is a popular annual event where the city erupts into a festival of art shows and collectors stream in from all over the place to buy artworks. And this is going to be the first big market event in China since the outbreak, which caused the much bigger art fair, Art Basel Hong Kong, to be canceled in March. Do you see that this pandemic is going to be pushing things away from the globalizing forces that have been creating these art fairs all over the world into something more local, like these, you know, citywide art festivals? Yes, absolutely. It's funny because Beijing Gallery Weekend, this is the fourth year, and it's usually this um, just prelude to Art Basel Hong Kong, right? It's kind of where we, who are based here, it's sort of get our show open and then do a few things in Beijing, but the main event is down in Hong Kong. So it's one stop on this traveling circus, whereas now it's this event that's happening on its own. So it's, you know, it's, it's actually become... Beijing Gallery Weekend, right? It's a weekend of shows in galleries for people in Beijing. So there's a lot of excitement just around the fact that that will happen. And maybe that's not a bad thing to really think about where we are and what it means to be in, in a specific place is, is, is overdue. So things are starting to reopen in Beijing and you have these huge festivities right ahead of you. What is a day in the life of Phil Tenari like these days? So I'm trying to hang on to some of the good things that came out of my personal sort of quarantine routine, specifically in terms of reading and and writing. Uh, So I've been trying to get up and do at least one hour of writing. Hmm. We we start work now at 10.30 instead of 9.30 just to to keep people off the subways at the more crowded hour. And then um, at this point, the offices are back to their normal rhythm. There, that was a long process, but most people now are, are there. So there's a lot of sitting around you know, our conference rooms with masks on, sort of conversing with each other, planning different things. And then just recently, I mean, just in the last two weeks or so, the social life has started to resume. So, hmm. you know, there are dinners some nights. Once in a while, there's even a bar. <laughs> It's like hearing about some impossible promised land. (laughs) What do you anticipate is going to be held over from the pandemic days in terms of innovation and adaptation? And how is that going to be combined into the the way things used to be? I think think it's just going to make us all much more intentional about almost everything. We're going to think more carefully about how we allocate limited resources and we're not going to assume that absolutely everything needs to be at the biggest possible scale um, aimed at the widest possible audience you know in the in the in the quickest possible amount of time i think that's a great note to end on (laughs) thanks thanks very much for coming on the podcast phil Uh, thanks andrew that's it for this week's episode of the art angle If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.